Amen. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5. We have been enjoying a summer of staring at the miracles of our Savior and seeing just rich glory on display. When Jesus does one thing, he is doing a billion things. And as we have been seeing in the miracles, when he is healing one uh, sickness, he's doing a billion things. He's teaching, he's instructing, he's revealing his glory, he's showing us uh, that the claims that he's making about himself are true. And we've been walking through, so far, just in the Gospel of Mark, we've been walking through a number of these miracles, and we have been seeing so much glory on display. And it brings us to Mark chapter 5. We, we saw the beginning of Mark chapter 5 last week with the healing of the demon-possessed men and how Jesus shows up on the seashore, on the, side, the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, uh, meets these two individuals, casts the demon out, they go into the pigs, the pigs drown off the cliff, and the townspeople ask Jesus to leave. And he gets back in the boat, and we're just going to chronologically move our way through to the very next section, because we're going to see two miracles, and they are interwoven in an extraordinary way. Um, these, these are uh, two of my favorite miracles in the Bible. This, this chapter is just absolutely profound. Um, and here's, here's my encouragement to all of us this morning. As we stare at our Savior yet again, we, we sang so many rich songs that dealt with trust. I believe and I will follow you. I believe everything that you say you are. We've been studying this in Family Bible Hour. We, we talked about this this morning with what faith looks like, authentic, genuine faith. And I don't think that it's any coincidence that God has brought you here specifically on this day. I don't think it's any coincidence that God aligned everything that he did with Family Bible Hour to the songs that we sang, to even the scripture that we read to bring us to a place where we are going to ask the question, do you really believe Jesus? Do you really believe his promises? Because we're going to see some individuals here that I think if we were in their shoes, we would say, okay, I don't understand what you're doing, Jesus, and I believe, but now I'm struggling to believe. And so this morning will be a morning dealing with our faith, dealing with trusting God, when we're scratching our heads saying, what are you doing? Let's pick it up in Mark chapter 5, verse 21. When Jesus had crossed over again in the boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him, and so he stayed by the seashore. One of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up, and on seeing Jesus, fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Please, come and lay your hands on her that she will get well and live. And Jesus went off with him. And a large crowd was following him and pressing in on him. And a woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years and had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse, after hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his garments, I will get well. And immediately, the flow of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had proceeded from him, 
turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing in on you, and you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see the woman who had done this. But the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before Jesus and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. While he was still speaking, they came from the house of the synagogue official saying, Your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? But Jesus, overhearing what was being spoken, said to the synagogue official, Do not be afraid any longer. Only keep on believing. And he allowed no one to accompany him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the synagogue official and he saw a commotion and people loudly weeping and wailing. And entering in, he said to them, why make a commotion and weep? This child has not died, but is asleep. They began laughing at him. But putting them all out, he took along the child's father and mother and his own companions and entered the room where the child was. And taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which translated means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl got up and began to walk, for she was 12 years old. And immediately they were completely astounded. And he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this. And he said that something should be given to her to eat. Father, we come uh, yet again, just, it's, it's holy ground. We are standing on holy ground. We feel like the woman who, with fear and trembling, in awe and reverence, timidly approach and fall down at your feet. Because we see your power on display, we see your goodness on display, we see your kindness on display. And yet we know that because of the cross, you have called us to come boldly before your throne. And so we do that. We do that with a beautiful tension. We don't waltz into your presence. We come with great anticipation and expectation of what you will teach us. And we come with a joy that just cannot be expressed because you have welcomed us into your presence this day. Father, these verses, it would take a lifetime to understand and to live out the implication of these verses. And you know exactly where every single soul in this room currently stands before you with their walk with you. Every single person has a relationship with you. It's just whether it's a relationship of love, whether it's a relationship of hatred, whether it's a relationship of I don't quite like you, I don't know where I stand with you, I don't know if I can trust you, God. God, I pray that this morning we would be open and honest with our hearts before you to say, God, this is where I stand and please do a work that only you can do. God, we want you to show us Christ. 
and to show him to be trustworthy beyond all our comprehension. So God, wherever we are, you know. So Holy Spirit, thank you for loving to show us Christ. And we ask that you would do that again this morning. Show us our Savior. Show us the implication of these verses, that we would be like Jairus, that we would hear the Savior speak to us this morning. Don't be afraid any longer. Believe. And that we would trust your timetable, even though it is so hard. It's beyond our comprehension. We can't fully understand it. But we would trust you. God, may we have our faith strengthened. And as we walk out of these doors, may we do radical things. Even as we talked about this morning in our Sunday school, may we do radical things for you. Because we bank on your promises and your character. So Holy Spirit, open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law this morning. We pray in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. In verse 21, Jesus crosses over again in the boat to the other side. And I I just want to make one note about that verse, which is so amazing to me. Jesus was teaching all day, teaching parables uh, in the boat, gets in the boat, crosses through the storm in Mark chapter 4 all the way to the other side, from Capernaum over to the eastern side, north to the eastern side, uh, the Gerasene. So from Capernaum, crosses through a storm, um, walks on shore, and immediately in Mark chapter 5, sees these two demon-possessed men, heals them of their demon possession, uh, and is asked to leave, and he leaves. So literally just walks onto the shore of Gadara, and then gets back in the boat and leaves. So crosses back over on the other side. So uh, somebody, somewhere in this boat ride back across, must be thinking, one of the disciples must be thinking, you just took us over there to heal two demon-possessed men and take us through a storm. That's literally the only reason why you brought us through there. We didn't stop. We didn't purchase anything. We, we didn't do anything. We just had our world completely turned upside down through the storm, and we were terrified of these two demon-possessed men. What are you doing? Remember we talked about last week, following Jesus is not a safe thing. He's going to ask you to go through very challenging things, and we're going to see that yet again this morning. But we can trust his character. He's good. He's good. And he sovereignly works in every single area. And I think Jesus would say, yes, you had a lesson to learn. He had a lesson to learn. Uh, The demon-possessed men had the lesson. The townspeople had the lesson. When God is doing one thing, he's doing a billion things. So they get in the boat, they cross over, and a large crowd gathers around him. So he stays by the seashore. Verse 22, one of the synagogue officials, this is a man in power. He is a ruler of the synagogue. So Jewish through and through, he knows that the Pharisees, who are the owners of the synagogues, hate Jesus. He's probably been told why he himself should hate Jesus as well. And here he is, basically the chairman of the elder board of this synagogue. And he runs up. And on seeing Jesus, he falls at his feet. We've seen that already with the demon-possessed men. Fall at his feet. We're going to see it again with this woman. Falls at Jesus' feet, submitting to him, and implores him. Same Greek word that we saw, the demon-possessed men, uh, that are demon-possessed no more. Wanting, imploring Jesus, can we go with you? Same word, imploring that the townsmen, townspeople did of Jesus. Please leave. They're imploring him. So begging him earnestly. And why is he begging? Of course he's begging because he says, my little daughter is at the point of death. Literally, she is as good as dead. She's going to die unless you come and save her. 
the synagogue official falls down at Jesus' feet because he knows his need is a desperate one. Something is terribly wrong. Luke actually says in the parallel passage in Luke 8, and behold, a synagogue official came and fell down. This is just a strange sight. A ruler, a leader, a synagogue official falling at the feet of a carpenter. Something is desperately wrong. And so he says, please come and lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live. And Jesus, apparently between verse 23 and 24, says, I would gladly do that. Because verse 24, he goes with him. Imagine the excitement in Jairus' mind and his heart. He was hoping that Jesus would, in fact, accompany him back home so that he would heal his daughter. And sure enough, Jesus says, I would love to do that. I'd be glad to do that. I'll, I'll be happy to go home with you. But what is Jairus thinking? He's excited, but he's also concerned because time is of the essence. Please, Jesus, let's hurry. She's, she's as good as dead now. And if you're going to get home uh, quick enough to heal her, you, we need to hurry. Please, let's hurry. But the Savior will not be hurried. And as they're on their way to heal Jairus' daughter, we meet another person in need. The crowd's pressing in, verse 25, a woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years. She'd been bleeding internally for 12 years. She'd endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but rather she'd grown worse. Mark tells us this detail that she had spent all of her money and it didn't help her. In fact, it had hurt her. She'd placed her faith in money, in doctors, and none of it had helped. It's very interesting, the parallel passage with Luke chapter 8. Luke is a physician. Remember, that's his occupation. He's a doctor. And he says that this disease couldn't be healed by anyone. So he doesn't add, like, the doctors were making her worse. He just says, you know what? It was a really hard disease. Doctors tried all that they could because he's a doctor. He's a fellow doctor. So, hey, my brethren in the doctor world, uh, it was a really rough disease. Mark says, giving everything that she gave, and she just got worse. And she hears about Jesus, and she thinks, if I can just touch his cloak, if I can just touch his garment, maybe I'll be healed. So she does. She goes up into verse 27 through the crowd behind Jesus and touches his cloak. She thought, if I just touch his garments, I will get well. And that's exactly what happened. Verse 29, immediately the flow of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. And immediately Jesus feels something as well. So immediately she feels something and Jesus feels something. She knows the affliction is gone. And Jesus knows that power has just proceeded forth from him. How he knows that, we don't know. But verse 30 tells us, perceiving in himself that power, the, the Greek word uh, dunamis, where we get dynamite from. This is the first time Mark uses that word. This is a powerful expression of the glory of our Savior. It had gone forth from him. And so he turns around in the crowd and he says these words, who touched my garments? Now, we have to Sanctified imagination, put ourselves in this setting. Jairus has shown up on the seashore, please, falls down, please, would you come heal my daughter? Please come. And Jesus says, yes, of course. He says, this way, this way, please hurry. And there's a crowd that starts forming around. And this huge crowd is moving, it's just kind of one amoeba crowd moving through. 
And Jesus, as they're walking with a little bit of a hurried pace, says, everybody stop. Who touched me? I've, I've been to many rock shows over the course of my lifetime, been inside of many mosh pits. That would be like me in the midst of a rock show with everybody just squishing you, just yelling, stop, who's touching me? <laughs> like somebody would say, everyone. Like everyone is currently touching you. This is a ridiculous question to ask. And the disciples pick up on that. They say, verse 31, wait, you see the crowds pressing in on you. And you're asking this, who touched me? This, by the way, is why I think the disciples are always struggling. Who is this guy, right? At the end of the storm being stilled, who is this man that the wind and the waves obey him? Of course he's the son of God. Of course he's God incarnate. This is God. Demon-possessed men, demons are gone. This is God. Of course this is God. And then as you're walking in the midst of a huge, massive crowd, hey, who touched me? Is this God? Wait, what is happening? (laughs) Would God ask this question? And Jesus looks around. He's asking this question very specifically to get this woman to open up. And this is really interesting because Jesus is going to ask her to do exactly what she didn't want to do. Jairus falls down at his feet and says, I don't care who knows about this. You need to come and help me. This woman didn't want to say a word. And Jesus says, "Uh, who touched me? He looks around, verse 32, sees the woman who had done this. But the woman is fearing. She's trembling, traumas. This is a traumatic experience. Why? Why did she want to remain anonymous? Because she has had this hemorrhage for 12 years. She's been sick for 12 years. According to ceremonial law, she would be unclean for 12 years, but she's still somehow living in society enough that she can show up with a huge crowd of people, touch a rabbi, and nobody's saying, whoa, 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 you're unclean, you're not allowed to be here. Somehow she's covered this up, somehow she's lied. She also doesn't want the the aspect of just losing all this money, going to these doctors, explaining what they had done to her, that it didn't work. I just want to be healed and I want to leave. I don't want my past shown. I want to remain anonymous. But when you come to Jesus, he's going to ask you to do things that don't feel comfortable. And she knows that she has been healed and she knows even though she's terrified, she's fearful, she's trembling, She's aware of what happened to her, and so she comes and she falls down. There's a word again, proskuneo, worships, submits herself to Jesus. Jesus, you're asking me to tell you that it was me and to explain my story. I would gladly do that. Notice what she does. She told him the whole truth. What did Jesus say? Who touched me? She could have answered that and said, me, and then left. But she falls down and says, what is it that you want from me? She submits herself to Jesus and tells him the whole truth about the doctors, about the time frame. When did this begin? This began 12 years ago. And I've been living a lie for 12 years. I've been living in a cover-up situation. And I didn't tell my friends. I didn't tell my family. My family has been hanging out with me. I've been unclean and I've been covering it up. Jesus plans this whole thing to call her out because... He knows what she's wanting, 
to be on anonymous. But he knows what she's needing. What she needs is for her whole story to be uncovered so that Jesus can cover in grace. She needs to share everything. These are biblical principles that we see. Proverbs chapter 28, verse 13. Whoever conceals his transgression will never prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. Jesus knows. You want just to be healed. You have a deeper need that I want to take care of because I want to be able to publicly tell everyone who's here that though you covered this up for 12 years, you're clean in my eyes. You're clean in the law's eyes. You can go home and be happy and be at peace. The burden is gone. This is what Paul says in Ephesians 5, let your deeds that are done in darkness be exposed so that Jesus can cover them. Confess your sins, James 5, 16 says, one to another and pray for each other that you may be healed. So Jesus says, tell me the whole truth. Tell me everything. And she gladly does it. And he says to her, daughter, beautiful term, my daughter, the one that I love, says two things. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. Now, remember we said this already with Mark, where sometimes it seems like he's redundant, that the storm was calm and it became perfectly still. Those are two separate things. The storm, uh, the wind, and the waves completely stilled. Here's the same thing. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. It seems like Mark's saying uh, the same thing, that Jesus is saying two, reiterating the same thing. Your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be healed. But that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying your faith has saved you. He's saying, in essence, you came to me under the umbrella of almost like a, um, a mysterious magician where there's some superstition. Let me just touch his cloak and we'll be fine. And I want you to see that your faith in me, to be able to do that, it's not superstition, it's saving faith. And I want everybody here to hear that. So tell me your story, tell me what happened, so that everyone can hear. This isn't superstitious, superstitious faith, that just somehow you're trusting in this magic healer. No, you have faith in the Son of God. And so I will take care of your deepest need and save you, and then I'll also take care of the need outside and heal you. Go in peace. You have lived for 12 years in turmoil. Wondering, is somebody going to find out? Wondering, what will my family think of me? Is this going to be the way that I die? And Jesus says, go in peace. Go in peace. Now, these two people are perfectly entwined Because we almost forget, as we dive deeply into what's happening with this woman, we almost forget that there is a man standing there who's wondering, why are we doing this now? What's what's happening, Jesus? Jairus is standing in the crowd, and I don't know how long it takes. Verse 33, she tells him the whole truth. Twelve years' worth of whole truth. I don't know how long that takes. Sanctified imagination... 12 minutes, 15 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour. And this whole time, imagine Jairus' fear. Jesus, I told you my daughter's dying. You can hear this woman's story later, but you, 
You need to come now. You need to save my daughter now. Heal her now. Look at just from a medical perspective. This old woman has a chronic condition. That can wait. The little girl has an acute condition that's going to kill her. This condition that the woman has doesn't need Jesus' attention right now. In fact, this is irrational behavior. This makes no sense on Jesus' part. And in fact, it's worse than that from a doctor's perspective. This is malpractice. If these two people were to show up in the same emergency room and a doctor were to say, let me check out what's going on, uh, little girl, acute problem, uh, old woman, chronic sickness, um, I'm going to take the old woman first. That's malpractice. That's lawsuit material. That's revoke every possibility of ever using your medical expertise ever again. And I, I believe in our fleshly nature, we look at Jesus and we say the same thing. We say, wait, Jesus, this isn't right. This is the wrong order. What are you doing? I know that Jairus is thinking that because he's struggling. He's afraid. He must be thinking, hurry up. We have to go. Please, please. You can share. We'll have a party at my house once my daughter's healed where you can share everything. And as Jesus is standing there talking with this woman, Jairus' worst fear is realized. He wants to hurry the Savior, but the Savior will not be hurried. And while he's still speaking, verse 35, they came from the house of the synagogue official and they said, your daughter has died. What are you thinking if you're Jairus? If you had, if you had cared about me, you would have hurried up. I thought you were the son of God, and you, you didn't know that my daughter's sickness needed attention faster than this old woman. My daughter's dead. And in the silence of that moment, when they say, don't trouble the teacher anymore, Jesus overhears, and he speaks words of comfort. He knows what Jairus is struggling through. And he says, do not be afraid any longer. Don't be afraid. I know that you might be afraid that you've lost your daughter forever. I know that you might be afraid that I don't care about you. I know that you might be afraid that I don't have power to help you now that she's died. But Jairus, I'm pleading with you, don't be afraid. And then he says this. My Bible says, only believe not the best translation. It's literally keep on believing. You have belief. You had faith to come and to ask me by the seashore. You have faith. So don't let that faith die. Keep on believing. Or another way you could say it, in the theologically accurate words of Journey, don't stop believing. Don't stop believing. You had belief. Don't let it die. Even though you think it's too late, even though you think there's no way that this can work, you have belief. Don't let it die. So, in the midst of Jairus being heartbroken, Jesus pleads, trust me. Trust me. There's no need to hurry, Jairus. Every culture 
has a sense of time. For some, it's, it's impolite not to show up early. For some cultures, it's impolite to show up on time. You have to show up 30 minutes, an hour late. But no matter what culture you are from, God's sense of timing will always confound you. God's sense of timing will always confound us. His grace rarely operates according to our schedule. I've heard it said before, God is never late. We cling to that. It's one of those hallmark stickers that you put on your refrigerator. God's never late. We just need a dot, dot, dot and another bumper sticker on there. Yeah, but he's hardly ever early. He's never late, but he rarely shows up early. In effect, in this moment, as Jesus speaks to Jairus and says, trust me, my time frame's not your time frame, but please trust me. In effect, he's speaking through Jairus and over Jairus' head, and he's looking at us square in the eyes saying, do you trust me? My time frame will confound yours, but will you trust me? Remember when Jesus calmed the storm? It seemed like it was too late. The disciples said, we are dying and you don't care. And Jesus says, no, you're not dead. You're not dying. You you thought I didn't care when you were in the midst of the storm. I cared. My grace and love are compatible with what seemed to you to be improper delays. Jesus is delaying, but that doesn't mean he loves you. In fact, it's not, I will not be hurried even though I love you. It's, I will not be hurried because I love you. I have a plan and I will not allow that plan to be hurried because I have love for you that works through this plan. So brothers and sisters, if we try to impose our understanding of schedule and timing onto Jesus, I can guarantee you, money back guarantee, you will struggle to feel loved by him. If you take your sense of timing, your sense of operating, your sense of how things should go, and you place it onto Jesus, you will struggle to be loved by him, to feel loved by him. He's going to love you through it, but you'll struggle to feel loved because you have a time frame and he's not acting according to the time frame. So what is he doing? What's he doing with Jairus? What's he doing with this woman? Here's what I believe is happening. Precisely because of Jesus delaying, both Jairus and the woman get far more than they asked for from Jesus. So here's a caution for all of us. Be aware that when you go to get something from Jesus, you're going to get far more than you bargained for. But he's also going to demand far more of you than you bargained for. You get from God more than you thought possible, and you have to give to God more than you thought you would have to. Just think about Jairus. What did Jairus come for? Jairus came to get healing of a fever from the Savior. And what did he end up getting from the Savior? He's going to end up getting a resurrected daughter from the dead. He gets far more than he bargained for. But when you come to Jesus, Jesus is going to demand of you far more than you wanted to give. Jairus was fine to give him faith that he could heal his daughter. But now he's struggling. He's afraid because Jesus is demanding not faith to heal a girl of a fever, but faith to heal and raise a dead girl back to life. Look at the woman with the issue of blood. She wanted to touch Jesus. 
and get out of there? What did she want to get from Jesus? She wanted to just be healed of her affliction. What did she end up getting from Jesus? Not only healing from affliction, but salvation, cleanliness in a whole sense, peace, so that the whole crowd understood what had happened and that this woman is declared clean. No ceremonial laws need to happen. No ceremonial cleansing. Once for all, clean, done. But what did she have to give? What did she want to give? Faith to touch and leave. But she had to give the faith to say, I'll submit to you, Jesus, and I'll share everything in front of everyone. These are tests beyond what they wanted, but they end up getting far more than they bargained for. When you and I go to Jesus to get something from him, we're going to get something way better than that. But it's going to require giving something to him way more than we thought possible. We, we talked about that in Family Bible Hour this morning. What is it that you would be hesitant to give to Jesus if he demanded that of you? Will you trust him? Will you trust him? Jesus is delaying with the woman with the issue of blood and with Jairus. And as he's doing that, it seems to the disciples and everyone else around that he's delaying for no good reason, but they don't have all the facts of what's happening. And if it seems to you that God is doing something in your life for no good reason, it's because you don't have all the pieces. You don't have all the information. So trust him. Don't be afraid. Keep on believing. Verse 37. They show up at the official's house. Jesus allowed no one to accompany him except for Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. They come to the house, and Jesus sees a great commotion, and people are loudly weeping and wailing because the the daughter has died already. And entering in, he said to them, Why do you make a commotion and weep? The child has not died, but is asleep. They began laughing at him. Of course they are. She's not asleep. She's dead. Again, the disciples thinking, he said you were the son of God and, and now you can't even tell that she's dead. You think she's asleep. But putting them all out, he took along the child's father and mother and his own companions. So tender. Come see. Come be here when this happens. Enters the room where the child was. Taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum. Aramaic for uh, little girl, endearing term, little girl. This is what I would uh, call my daughter. This is how I would speak to my daughter. I don't say little girl. I say, hey, sweetie, hey, sweetheart. This is a term of endearment to a little daughter. Hey, sweetie. And then kum is get up, um, arise. It's time to wake up. It's time to go. But it's not like stand up already. It's a very gracious, hey, it's, it's the morning, rise and shine, it's time to get out of bed. This is the way that a father would speak to a daughter when it's time to get up in the morning. Hey, sweetie, just rubbing her head. Hey, sweetie, sweetheart, it's time to get up. He takes her by the hand, and immediately, verse 42, the girl got up and began to walk because she was 12 years old. Now, that sentence doesn't seem to make sense if you don't know what that word walk means, the key word there is for or because. So immediately the girl got up and began to walk because she was 12 years old. But what Mark is telling us is that the word walk there is a very specific Greek word for walking like a 12-year-old would do. This is running around. This is I can't stop. This is constant movement, constant motion. 
So it's not just get up, sit up, and start to walk around. This is, she's running around in the house as if nothing had ever happened to her. And that's why it says, because she was 12 years old. She's running like she's a 12-year-old because she's 12 years old. What does that tell us? Remember, we've said this before. When Jesus heals, he not only takes care of the problem, but the effects of the problem. When Jesus takes care of the storm, he not only stills the storm, but he takes care of the effects of the storm so that instantly the water is as glass. When Jesus heals the demon-possessed men, they are sitting in the right mind, instantly healed. When he healed the paralytic, he instantly gets up. Doesn't need physical therapy. There's no joints that have atrophied together. When Jesus takes care of the problem, he takes care of not only the problem, but its effects. And so this little girl, though dead, is able to get up, sit up, just as if nothing had even happened, and she's running around. And immediately, probably the biggest understatement in the Bible they were completely astounded. The disciples are thinking, yep, yeah, he's God. We, we got it. Don't, I don't get the comment about the woman with the, who touched me, but yeah, no, he's God, for sure. I think Jairus is just standing there, tears. What, what an emotional roller coaster. Please come and heal my daughter. And then to hear, your daughter is dead. And then to hear the Savior, I'm still going to your house. Trust. And then to see her rise from the dead. And she's running around. She probably runs up to him. Daddy gives him a big hug. And just what, what are you thinking? What must be going? Of course, you're completely astounded. What's going through your mind? This man is the Son of God. And he gave them strict orders, gives them two orders, commands from the Savior who just raised the girl from the dead. I'll do whatever that guy tells me to do. And he says, number one, don't tell anyone about this. We're going to find out that that's, that's a hard one to keep under wraps, right? Time out. Hang on. People were weeping and wailing outside of this room. And you're telling us that we can't say what? This is going to be hard. Uh, to keep under wraps. Why does Jesus say this? Because he doesn't want to be known as a miracle worker. He wants to be known as the Savior of the world to take away your sins, not just your physical ailments. We're going to find that they struggle to do this and people find out. But then he says this, command number two. He says that something should be given to her to eat. I'm usually famished in the morning after I've spent the whole night sleeping. I don't know how hungry you are when you wake up from being dead, but apparently very hungry. And this is what I love about what the Savior does. He says, let's take care of her greatest need spiritually and physically, and let's, let's take care of a need that seems so commonplace that it's not even really worth mentioning, but he says, I want to take care of practically the need that she has of eating. Jesus takes care of our greatest needs spiritually and physically, and he takes care of all of those little mundane needs that just seem like they don't even matter. Remember Matthew 6, Jesus knows when a sparrow falls from the sky. He feeds the birds of the air, and how much more does he care about you? He's going to take care of you, and he does that. So they're completely astounded. Completely astounded. But go back up. There's one, there's one statement that I've just always struggled with. It's in verse 39 when Jesus says, 
The child has not died, but is asleep. Why does Jesus make reference to sleep? This girl is dead. This seems like an untrue statement because Jesus says she's not died, but she totally has died. What is Jesus doing? I think the answer is in what he does next by taking her by the hand, speaking tenderly to her, and her getting up as if she was asleep. This is what Jesus is saying to you and to me and to his companions that were in the room and to Jairus and Jairus' wife. He's saying this, if you trust in me and you follow me and I have you by the hand, then for me to raise you from the dead is as easy as you waking somebody up from sleep. I am the son of God and to raise somebody from the dead, though that seems impossible to you, for me, that's as easy as just waking somebody up from sleep. He takes her by the hand and says, come on, little girl. Come on, sweetheart. It's time to get up. It's time to get up. In essence, he's saying to us, if I have you by the hand, you don't have to fear death. Death is nothing but sleep. That's why the New Testament writers will pick up on that word sleep, and they'll say that people in the Lord slept, not even died, but slept. Because if Jesus has us by the hand, there's nothing for us to fear. There's nothing more terrifying than losing the hand of your parent. I don't know if you remember those days when you were in the grocery store and, and you're following your mom around and the cart's moving. And for me, it was always the Lunchables. They caught my eye. And so I'm holding her this way, walking them. Oh, there's a new Lunchable. I got to get the Lunchable. And I lose grip of her hand. And for me, it's about a second of studying the Lunchables. And it ends up being five minutes. And I turn around and my mom's gone. That, that moment one of the most terrifying moments in our existence, right? That, that moment is just, I'm lost. I'm lost and there's no way I'm ever getting back to where I'm supposed to be. I'm lost. There's nothing more terrifying than losing the hand of the person who loves you, who's guiding you through life. And Jesus says, I've got you by the hand, but here's the question. How do we know that he has us by the hand and he'll never let us go? just like he does with this little girl. How do we know that? We know that because Jesus willingly let go of the Father's hand on the cross, separated from the Father, becoming sin on our behalf, so that we would know he would never lose his grip on us. Oh, we'll lose our grip on him all the time, but he will never let go of us. There's nothing more precious and powerful than a child holding their parent's hand, feeling so safe and so secure. And so Jesus takes the little girl by the hand. He says, I've got you. And for me to take care of you and raise you from the dead, that's as easy as waking somebody up from sleep. So here's the question. Are you trying to hurry Jesus? Where in your life are you impatient with Jesus? Where are you impatient with him? Is God delaying something in your life just like he did with Jairus? Are you ready to give up? Are you afraid like Jairus? Are you impatient with him? Will you willingly admit this morning there may be a crucial factor that you just don't have access to yet? The answer is with Jairus to trust Jesus. 
And of course we're going to trust him. This is the son of God. Is there a storm raging in your life? He can say to it, be still. Is there a demonic activity raging in your life? He can say to it, be gone. Is there a, a physical ailment that's going on in your life? He can say, be healed. Is there death that you feel there's no way I can overcome this? He can say, be raised, just as easy as waking somebody up from the dead or from, from sleep. This man is the son of God. So why would we ever want to hurry somebody who knows us, loves us, and is working for our good? Somebody who is this powerful and this loving and treats us this tenderly, why would we ever want to hurry him and rush him? Instead, we should, like the woman, like Jairus, and like everybody else who was there in that room, we should be completely astounded and trust him. Let him this morning take you by the hand. Let him do what he wants to do. He loves you completely. He knows what he's doing. And soon enough, you will hear those words. He'll say to you, oh, it's time to get up. It's time to wake up. And he'll walk with you, never letting go of your hand, leading you where he has purposed and planned for your good and for his glory. Father, we are so astounded at the Savior. Once again, we just get the privilege every Sunday of seeing Jesus so clearly on display. And we see him yet again this morning, blown away by his time frame, which is not ours. Even as we studied in Family Bible Hour this morning, what would we hesitate to give to you? I think all of us can say we hesitate giving our time frame to you. We really would like you to operate on our time frame, just like Jairus, just like this woman with the issue of blood. We want you to work, but in ways that we want you to work. We readily admit this morning, when we come to you asking you for things, we know that we will get something even more profound, greater than we could imagine from you. You are the giver of amazing gifts. So we know we are going to get something incredible from you. But we also know that when we come to you, we think we have to give a little bit, but you will demand from us, just like you did with Jairus, just like you did with this woman, you will demand that we give everything. But you demand that because you are a loving God. You don't want any part of our heart to trust in ourselves or to trust in others, but to trust in you wholly. And so you are in the business of knocking out those foundation pillars underneath us that are built in something other than you and showing us that we can always fall back on the cornerstone. We can always fall back on our solid rock. And he is the one that we must build our lives upon. So, Jesus, we trust you. We say uh, with the Father who will show up later in Mark, who has a son who's demon-possessed, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. We say with Jairus, we're afraid. And it's a struggle for us to give you all of our heart. It's a struggle for us to come to you to do what you've commanded because of what you've promised and to do it exactly the way you've told us. But we know, God, we know you are good and you are trustworthy. 
So we thank you for taking us by the hand, for saying to our souls, as it were, long ago, get up, allowing us to walk as sons and daughters of the God of the universe. We cling to your hand, but we lose our grip far too often than we would even want to admit. And that's why we cling to your hand and to your promise, knowing that when our grip slips, yours will never lose its hold on ours. God, we trust you with all of our heart. We love you and we thank you. In the name of Jesus, our Savior, amen.